This is William Booth for the Radical Americas podcast. Later in this episode, I'll be speaking to Rachel Sanchez about eugenics and sterilization. But we start with a clip recorded last summer of me speaking to Andrew Blades about AIDS, literature and activism. I'm here with Dr. Andrew Blades from University of Bristol. And Andrew, you're a lecturer in English, is that right? Yeah, at, that's at right. Yeah. And one of the projects you're working on at the moment um, is your book, uh, working title, Reassessing American AIDS Literature. And as part of that, uh, if that's right, there is an article on John Weir, and particularly his AIDS fiction. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, this project comes about um, through a few years' work um, post-PhD. Um, and I wrote my PhD on the postmodern in American AIDS literature, thinking about how in the 1980s and the 1990s the epidemic was constructed as a kind of postmodern phenomenon and many postmodern theorists such as you know, Jean, Jean Baudrillard, um, Derrida to um, drew upon AIDS as an example, particular aspects of the postmodern condition. But it's I've swerved into thinking about how AIDS is being the AIDS epidemic, the early AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and 90s in the USA is being historicised in certain cultural representations. John Weir's um, only actually published two novels, both of which deal with the AIDS epidemic on some level. The first was in 1989, that was called The Irreversible Decline of Eddie Socket, and you can see from the title that it's written in particular point in the, in the development of the epidemic at a time when uh, diagnosis of HIV was thought of as a kind of death sentence. And then the, the next novel is in 2005, 16 years later. It's called What I Did Wrong, and it's thinking through how that uh, those earlier years of the epidemic might be historicised and revised. And part of that is that project is looking at uh, AIDS activism during that period? There is, um, there is some uh, commentary on AIDS activism, yes, particularly ACT UP. So Weir was involved um, in the ACT UP movement in the late 80s, early 90s, although not for a longish period. Um, and the main character, the protagonist of What I Did Wrong, is uh, now a creative writing lecturer, but he looks back on some of his time as an activist and um, he's actually quite... Um, sceptical about it. He doesn't believe that in the end it was really a moment of great change, that a lot of the things that the activists were um, advocating and a lot, of the ch- a lot of the changes that they were expecting or, or um, intending to e- effect didn't actually come about socially. Although it's um, undeniable that the pressure that groups such as ACT UP put on the federal drugs authority and and indeed on the federal government um, really did effect profound change in terms of speeding up drug trials, in terms of uh, increasing access to medication, this, this sort of thing. And perhaps because of the context, because of the particular 1980s moment, more generally politically, you know, Thatcherism in the UK, Reaganism in, in the US, we, we probably pigeonhole AIDS activism as sort of naturally radical because it mm. was what it was uh, set against. But, but there were fractures and tensions within uh, the, the kind of coalition of AIDS activists. Yeah, very much. It's interesting you use that word coalition. That's that is act up the AIDS mm. coalition to unleash power. Um 
this almost Foucauldian idea that power flows in two ways. It's a kind of bilateral transfer. Mm. Um, unleashing power, as in unleashing those in power, um, taking the leashes off and, and subjecting them to scrutiny, but also unleashing the power of alterity, of radical difference, of um, radical organisation, activism, if you like. Um, and yet... Yes, certainly that coalition, as, as all coalitions are baggy, broad um, and um, can quite quickly uh, um, become quite nebulous, um, ACT UP did fracture into a number of different, um, more targeted, more nuanced groups, you might argue, in the 90s, going in towards the mid-90s. The mid um, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is the film, David Francis' film, How to Survive a Plague, which documents that whole process. And from the beginning of ACT UP through to these um, these splinters. Um, and it does, in some ways, foreground the fact that much early AIDS activism was um, uh, the preserve or the province of privileged groups mm. so white cisgendered middle class gay males okay there's an alterity there in, in the queerness but in a sense that's offset by uh, by other more normative subjectivities um the film is a documentary it's made entirely of archival footage and then retrospective interviews and it's something that it begins to address but i think there's more work that can be done to think about the nuances of um of difference that are that are working within within those early coalitions, and I mean one of the most amazing things actually in this respect is the ACT UP uh, archive that is now available online, so mm. you can scan that for interview after interview after interview with people who were there um, at the front line of that of that movement, um, and it's a, it's an amazing resource. It's uh, it's been digested from the New York Public Library's yeah. uh, archival resources. So that's there's more work to be done there, more yeah. research, I think. Well, quite a few radical groups have made uh, online dissemination of ephemera, pamphlets, um, correspondence quite a priority. And is that to do with um, owning history, mm. uh, those groups telling a, a story, reconstructing a narrative that might otherwise not be well known? Yes, it's a double-edged thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to ensure that it remains in the consciousness and in the collective memory. At the same time, there's a question of who actually owns that memory mm -hmm. and, and what kind of narrative then emerges as the dominant yeah. narrative of those years. Um, another writer that I've been researching, thinking about recently, is Sarah Schulman, who is uh, one of the... I hesitate to use the word veteran because it implies certain things as a problematic term, but one of the veterans, if you like, of that movement. And she wrote novels about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, Rat Bohemia, People in Trouble. More recently, she published a very provocative, um, fascinating book called The Gentrification of the Mind, which is a collection of essays. Um, she describes the experience of hearing a, a retrospective on the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s on the radio and having to um, swerve into a lay-by um, because it, cr it creates this uh, emotional 
um, reaction. She calls it a kind of gentrification. The, 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 the edges of the narrative have been smoothed, that there yeah. are all of these assumptions and presumptions, glossings over, um, that it's becoming now a kind of historical fact, when, of course, there's still a massive AIDS pandemic internationally, um, and the history, you know, the, the ink is barely dry on that history, if yeah. at all. Um, the history of the the American uh, AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s. And, of course, it's still a massive problem in the USA, too. Yeah. And it follows all of the, you know, the patterns that you might expect of an epidemic. And demographically, socially, it, it reveals a lot of the inequalities in society. And, and um, so all of those things are coming to bear and being brought to bear in, in Schulman's writing, um, the way that it's being packaged. Mm. And it, it, perhaps you could say a little bit about how how this fits with the, the New York at the time, and that, mm. the, is it a particular setting for that kind of activism? I mean, obviously there's a lot going on in San Francisco as well, but yeah. the New York moment mm. is, is quite important. Too. Totally. I think um, in many ways the... AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s, that early epidemic, has, has become almost collapsed into a repertoire of standardised shorthand mm. shortcuts, if you like, cultural shortcuts that evoke an era. Um, and there's a danger then that, it, that something, you know, massive human catastrophe, trauma, becomes flattened, becomes one-dimensional, becomes a kind of soundtrack or an ambience. Yeah. Um, this is something that Schulman's very uh, sensitive to in writing her novel um, in the late 80s, early 90s, Rat Bohemia. Actually, it was mid-90s, 1995 it was published. She's thinking about that New York already as a kind of historical um, uh, tableau, actually, mm. um, and something kind of apocalyptic. And yeah. um, This is the pre-gentrified, pre um, Giuliani, pre-Bloomberg, yeah. <laughs> New York, really. Yeah. Um, and there is a danger of, of that, the AIDS epidemic of that time becoming, uh, as I say, a kind of seasoning. Um, yes. You notice this even in, in uh, British publications as well. There's a, a history of the 80s, a sort of popular history called Bang, that was published by Graham Stewart. Um, and uh, on the back blurb, I remember reading Reaganomics, you know, Boy George, AIDS. <laughs> this evokes the era yes. um, so clearly and so beautifully. And and just to see it in that list is yeah. quite a quite a jolt, actually. Yes, I think. and we see we find similar things with the miners' strike, with the Berlin Wall, perhaps as well. Absolutely. Things that immediately yeah. conjure up a whole series of cultural images yeah. that are perhaps emotionally and uh, politically uh, somewhat separate from the much more complicated histories. Yes, yes. This is why I think teaching it, if we can yeah. come to that as well, um, is, is a real eye-opener for me. Most of the students I teach are British, um, some Americans, and um, they're, all born, they're all born in the mid-90s. And so for them, the epidemic in the UK or in the USA... Um, the epidemic pre-medication is something that they don't have much sense of at all. Um, I show them a British um, uh, government uh, uh, advert that was on television that lots of people of a certain generation would remember instantly, which is melting icebergs and a John Hurt voiceover. It's an incredibly gothic uh, representation of, of the epidemic, except it doesn't represent it at all. It's, it, 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 it kind of shirks direct representation. So people mm. were very confused by these icebergs at the time, these icebergs melting, denoting a kind of apocalyptic event around the corner. But I think if you were to show that to somebody 
who was there at the time, then that is a shorthand. It's an instant mnemonic device. Mm. Whereas for the students, they will immediately think, well, what, what, how is it being represented here? Because they're, yeah. not, they're not aware of, um, very often, of, of how contentious the issues around AIDS mm. were in the 80s and 90s, and particularly in America, which is what I'm teaching, is American yeah. AIDS literature. Um, and clarity and frankness about AIDS is something that took a very long time to come to in both sides of the Atlantic, as, as I understand that. Absolutely, yes. I think it was uh, some maybe 1987, 88 before Ronald Reagan even mentioned it in a speech. Yeah. And in fact, looking back at many of the representations of ACT UP at the time, one of the things that many activists wanted to see was just that recognition. Yeah. Just even for. Um, somebody uh, in power to utter the, the, the acronym. Yes. Um, I mean, even the acronym hides because it's an acronym. It's yes. not a word. You know, it's, it, it hides other things. But um, but just for it to be spoken, just for it to be visible. And if it's visible in a negative way, then fair enough. We can deal with that. We yeah. can work with that. That's the next stage. But just for it to be visible. Um, different Countries and cultures at the time had different uh, ways of operating here. I mean, Edmund White, the um, American novelist, man of letters, um, in his novel The Married Man, talks about the French attitude at the time, and he says, you know, all of the uh, HIV-positive men, or the men um, with AIDS-related illnesses, are in shuttered houses in Aquitaine. You know, they're completely hidden from view. Yeah. In America, one of the things that ACT UP did and, and other action groups was to make AIDS unavoidably visible. Yes. Um, and that, I think, is one of the messages of How to Survive a Plague, David France's documentary film, that how-to title, um, in a sense, saying, well, this is the first thing that you have to do, in a way, is to make it visible by hook or by crook. Yes, yes, and, and bring that frankness to the, to the centre of the debate. Yeah. Perhaps we could wrap up just with brief chat about your next project um, something about anxiety yes this comes from the AIDS research tangentially um, in thinking about collective panic um, and how how the AIDS crisis uh, in the 80s and 90s caused people to reflect on uh, cultural identities and processes that were not immediately related to AIDS but you know, set, set it off and it got me thinking about um, the kind of the transmission of anxiety and how it operates within culture, what it means. So we, we use that term all the time, you know, I'm anxious about X or Y. But what is anxiety? Is it even a useful term? There's a diagnostic um, canon of symptoms in mm. the DSM that's, that lists uh, uh, the preconditions for a diagnosis of of anxiety, generalised anxiety disorder. But even that doesn't really get to the nub of it because generalised anxiety disorder. The clue is in the word generalised. Yeah. You know. We use the word anxiety in a very generalised way. The book is going to be called Ages of Anxiety, which is riffing on W.H. Auden's uh, Eclogue, The Age of Anxiety, which was written immediately after the Second World War. And it's going to take flashpoints in the cultural history of uh, the USA through the 20th century, through the long 20th century, really, so yeah. up to the present day. Um, the, the, the Freudian psychoanalytical moment, early 20th century, um, that mid-century period of the Cold War and the coming of Librium, then Valium, the marketing of, um, kind of psychopharmacological mm. um, medications, um, going into the um, 
the uh, introduction of generalised anxiety disorder into the DSM in the 1980s and then the psychiatric moment, if you like, of Prozac Nation, yeah. um, etc. And then the present day social media, um, uh, all of our various scenarios, our anxious scenarios in the present day. Um, so it's it's really very, very embryonic at the moment. But what I'm very excited about is um, is how I might think about anxiety as being uh, uh, <laughs> just that shorthand that I've been, in a sense, um, sceptical about in, yeah. in, in, in AIDS epidemic representations. But thinking about how anxiety as a term becomes a shorthand for lots of different concerns and, and um, actually how it operates as a cultural term, how it shifts, um, and how that reflects other shifts, so that it's a, a kind of meta term, if you like, that yes. goes all the way through the century. Of course, it goes further back to, you can think about Kierkegaard writing on anxiety in the 19th century, you can go all the way back to the etymological roots, this this ang, A-N-G root, which, which, which denotes the constriction of the airways, you know, it's related to angina. Um, It's a physiological thing in a way, but it's become a metaphysical thing. It's become a cultural thing. It's Mm. incredibly potent, but also strangely uh, amorphous, clammy term. So I want to really prize that apart and And see. And this mass aspect makes it particularly interesting. Yeah, yeah, Mm. cultural anxiety, collective anxiety. Mm. How does the, what Brennan calls the transmission of affect work? In, in that regard, yeah. Well, it sounds fascinating. We look forward to reading that in the future and uh, we'll look out for reassessing American AIDS literature uh, when that appears. Thank you very much. Thank Andrew you, Blades. Thanks. And Andrew's article on John Weir's AIDS fiction came out recently in Studies in American Fiction. Next, I speak to Rachel Sanchez. This conversation took place at the Society of Latin American Studies Conference in Glasgow at Easter. I'm here at the Society of Latin American Studies annual conference at the University of Glasgow and yesterday I presented on a panel with Rachel Sanchez and I'm now going to ask a bit more uh, about your work. Um, So for listeners, you are currently in a PhD programme at class in Cambridge and perhaps you could tell us a bit about your project in general. Well, um, this is my second year, so I just came back from fieldwork. And I was able to find um, a lot of cases on forced and coerced sterilization on women, uh, specifically indigenous women, but there's also um, HIV-positive women or um, women with disabilities um, um, and obstetric violence in general as well in Mexico. Uh, But what I work on specifically is on how the eugenics discourse in uh, in Mexico shaped uh, the idea of like a cohesive like or like a a joint like national identity. Um, So basically like what I'm trying to do is just to trace a taxonomy of the body and how does that uh, get managed by and shaped by the eugenics discourse of the time and how the eugenic discourse gets adapted um, to Mexico specifically. Um, and what sort of time period are you looking at? Um, well, currently I'm working on uh, like the first half of the 20th century uh, from uh, 1930 one to 1951 basically uh, but uh, eugenics starts um, uh, 
well, the Society uh, of Eugenics starts in 1931, but you can see traces of like different like intellectual um, talking about um, heredity and uh, hygiene and uh, the betterment of the race uh, on the last quarter of the 19th century. And you can see that in the archives, specifically on this uh, magazine or journal, that it's called Gaceta Medica. But for the specific purpose of my project, I'm just going to stay with uh, eugenics. And like contrary to common belief that I've um, I've seen that like after Second World War, and this is not only specifically uh, of Mexico, but after Second World War, um, uh, there's um, uh, the the eugenic discourse did not change that much. Um, because uh, the Society of Eugenics in Mexico specifically like, like ceased to exist maybe in the 70s, and which it's um, a bit odd because it, it was during the 70s under Echevarria's rule that they started uh, doing uh, policies uh, to control over like the, the overpopulation problem. But um, the whole thing is that, like, when they started doing that, they implemented quotas. So from 82 to 2000 and something, 2001, I think, they were supposed to um, lower, like, um, uh, natalidad? Yeah, birth rates. Birth rates um, uh, to 1%. Uh, but that didn't happen. But they start, like... In each period, they started to look at the birth uh, control and whatever, but they saw that they were not meeting their quotas. Uh, and then, uh, during uh, like the early 90s, uh, and specifically in 1996, uh, they start to see a lot of indigenous women that come into the public sphere and start to say, like, I've been forced and coerced to get sterilized. And that's where uh, the Tribunal para Red de Mujeres, which is a mock tribunal that happened in May, uh, May 1996 uh, or June, it was some, somewhere in between, um, in which uh, 51 women, uh, indigenous, mainly indigenous women, uh, started, uh, like, you know, putting claims that they were forced and coerced to get sterilized. And after that, like, you start seeing cases about forced and coerced sterilization process, obstetric violence, and whatnot. And they do try to implement policies in order for them to not do it anymore. They created um, the National Commission for Human Rights, CONAMED, was created right after that, and whatnot. But in the end, sterilization processes and obstetric violence in general keeps on happening and there are cases that like the most recent one that I was able to find it's uh, March 2017 we're in April <laughs> yeah and is this concentrated in certain places or all over Mexico or mainly in areas of higher indigenous population well it is all over Mexico but the most common cases are from the states of uh, Oaxaca uh, Guerrero, I've seen a lot of cases from Hidalgo, which are mainly uh, indigenous populations. Uh, some cases in Yucatan, there are not that many, though. Uh, and there have been a lot of cases on, like, women who are HIV positive. 
um, there have also been a lot of cases on like women with disabilities. Mm. Um, for example, there like what I presented yesterday was about uh, this colectivo that it's called the Colectivo Chuchican and Disability Rights International. They made a report in 2014 stating that more than 40% of the women have been forced and coerced to get sterilized. And this is done because in the institutions, uh, uh, they like in order to cover up sexual abuses, they do tend to like force or get family members to coerce women to get sterilized. And it's the whole process of like these bodies that have been pathologized by the eugenical discourse and the the discourse of science and medicine, that you can still see a threat uh, nowadays, and it's shown like well, on specific uh, like obstetric violence cases. And is the discourse that you're looking at around this very specific, or is it tied into wider conversations in Mexico about, for instance? race and you know what's the role of race in the post-revolutionary period and what does it mean to be Mexican is it yeah uh, well they do construct it or cemented the idea of what it's to be Mexican under the mestizo uh, discourse um, so the whole idea like is to implement a series of policies in which you integrate everybody from Mexico into that mestizo ideal and uh, that's where like immigration policies come into account. The regularization of um, like prostitution sites or brothels or whatnot. So there's a lot of bodies like specific uh, like they do use uh, different categorizations on that time. For example, like a body with disabilities, they would say idiota, anormal, loco which often, uh, for them, uh, they do tend to say, like, that the abnormal or, like, the pathological other tends to be too expensive for the state. So in a process of state formation, they were more prompt to listen to ideas such as eugenics. And this is not uncommon in the rest of the world. Um, in this, like, just to stay in the region, in the specific case of Latin America, uh, there was an insurgency on the eugenics discourse. Uh, specifically, or the main ones are Argentina, uh, Peru, which is known for the many, like, 300,000 cases on force and coerced sterilization on indigenous populations, and uh, and, Argent uh, and Brazil as well. Uh, Cuba is also on the eugenic discourse, and uh, Puerto Rico is. Uh, they made this uh, eugenic sterilization law in 1937, and in Mexico they made the first steri uh, eugenical sterilization law in 1932, and it was called uh, Law 121, which is still uh, on the books nowadays. Uh, mentioning Puerto Rico, you've just got a publication out on that topic, I believe. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, that was uh, my master thesis. Uh, it's about uh, media representations on how they address the topic on um, forced core sterilization uh, on Puerto Rican women and contraceptive pill uh, experiments on uh, Puerto Rican women as well. Uh, I would like to focus like on the contraceptive pill experiments on Puerto Rican women because this was made in 1947, and this was uh, this was this was also done in different places. 
uh, which are also con considered as a pathological other. In 1947, uh, the, the experiments were done on Haitian women, Mexican women, and Puerto Rican women. Puerto Rico being a colony of the United States, and before that, they started uh, doing Syntex, which is, uh, no, Syntex is in Mexico, CRO is in, uh, in the United States. Uh, and uh, in the United States, they started uh, doing um, experimentations on prisons. I think it was uh, a prison in Ohio. Uh, and they also did um, experimentations on a psychiatric hospital in upstate New York. And then they moved uh, to like the colony of, of Puerto Rico. Uh, the thing about it is that if you come to think about it, you can see how they were operating within disciplinary institutions that were easy to ma like the bodies were easy to manage. Basically, uh, they uh, they did it in this uh, very specific place, uh, which is Rio Piedras, which actually is the same place that the University of Puerto Rico is. Um, but um, they didn't experiment on Puerto Rican women. They had very little knowledge of, on what was going on. Uh, actually, the pills that they were given, or, well, they also gave them a foam. Uh, and the pills that they were given, they, they had like 18 times more than what a woman would consume. Mm nowadays and that brought a lot of trouble like a lot of uh, health problems or health issues specifically on internal bleeding or cancer or um, and like things that are like that they're suffering like nowadays and the whole sterilization process was mainly done because of neo-Malthusian ideas uh, which is like the whole thing about like you know if you don't have any resources you don't like you don't get to procreate but in the end, like, who is able to reproduce the nation, that's a big concern, because they're considered not apt. Uh, the body of the prisoner, the body of uh, the colonial body, or the body of uh, the disabled, in the end. So this made the perfect context to experiment on women. Um, so basically, um, the whole conception of the body starts to change after the contraceptive pill is discovered and uh, at the same time like this was done in 1947 and in 1947 in uh, a psychiatric hospital in John Hopkins uh, they discovered uh, or they like tried to manage the body of the intern sexual uh, which was done very arbitrary uh, there was this guy, he was uh, John Manning, and he was in charge of the whole experiment and whatever. Uh, and he did it very arbitrary, uh, arbitrary because if uh, their like, body part did not measure more than an inch and a half, they would instantly get feminized. It didn't matter your whole like, hormonal uh, cartography, that didn't matter. So it was very arbitrary. So. The fact that these bodies, who should not be able to reproduce, like start to get managed by this new, like biopower, in lack of a better word, um, uh, gets the body into like a very important position, and you can start to see how the body is not thought 
mainly for reproduction, but on, like also as a consumer mm. of these new technologies of the self. So that's very interesting to look at, like in order to trace a taxonomy of the body and whatnot. That's great, and we'll put a link to that um, on underneath the podcast. Well, thanks very much, Rachel Sanchez, for talking to us. No, thank you. <laughs> and you can find Rachel's article on press representation of contraceptives and sterilization in the latest edition of De Raiz Diversa. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time. This has been the Radical Americas podcast with me, William Booth. find out more about the Radical Americas Network, go to RadicalAmericas.org. To find out more about the Radical Americas Journal, go to the UCL Press website.